Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Welcome back, everyone. Before we get into a book, I like to take a step back and look at the book as a whole. Just like when an author puts a table of contents at the beginning of their book as a guide to the reader, having a broad sense of a book can help us understand the significance of smaller components of a story. Starting off with Mormon's overall project, I've used familiar narrative structure to help show what Mormon is trying to do. The Book of Mosiah is the exposition, the introduction. It's where we're introduced to the important context and characters. Two of the most important characters of Mormon's project are the Church of Christ and the Nephite government. And then we get the inciting incidents of the coming together of these two characters, which results in the fracturing of Nephite society into believers and unbelievers a revolutionary mission to the Lamanites, the dissolution of the Nephite kingdom, and the creation of a new form of Nephite government. Everything that we've been talking about over the last few episodes. In the books of Alma and Helaman, we see the drama begin to build. We follow the effects of the book of Mosiah as they are played out over roughly a century, culminating in the complete breakdown of the Nephite nation and the church being brought to the brink of destruction. The climactic moment finally comes in 3rd Nephi where after a cataclysmic destruction the prophesied Messiah appears and welcomes in a period of unprecedented peace in 4th Nephi that erases all divisions in society for centuries. Finally, Mormon draws down his project in the Book of Mormon Nephite society has utterly rejected the covenant community of the church and is destroyed. All of this serves to produce a record that Moroni, Mormon's surviving son, completes and buries for future generations. So that gives us the overall view of Mormon's project. The Book of Alma is Mormon's longest book. Our modern edition has 62 chapters, but in Mormon's original work, it was an even 30. There are all kinds of ways to think about how to break up this book, some of which we still have yet to discover. We'll just cover a few in today's episode. The first way to think about the book is by who Mormon is using as his primary source. Mormon's work has been called an abridgment, which means that he's selecting from pre-existing sources. In biblical studies, people like Mormon are called redactors, Redactors string narratives together from various sources to create a more coherent whole. Mormon's main source for most of this book is Alma, the person who the book is named after, that is, Alma the Younger. At the beginning of the book, Alma is both the chief judge and the high priest. His record covers about 17 years, includes competing religious movements, rebellion, substantial theology, two flashbacks drawn from a record kept by the sons of Mosiah, missionary travels, and war. Alma begins the book as chief judge, but he quickly relinquishes his role to focus on maintaining the spiritual vitality of the community. Splinter Nephite groups plague Nephite relationships with the Lamanites, 
even while the sons of Mosiah are carrying out a transformational mission that results in many Lamanites returning to the covenant. The missionary efforts of Alma and the sons of Mosiah generate mixed results, but one thing they do produce is a new generation of Nephite leaders, including one of Alma's sons, Helaman. Alma's portion of the record gives way to Helaman's. During Helaman's period, we get extensive accounts of a war inspired by a man named Amalickiah. Helaman may not have been the best record keeper during this period. He was a busy man. He not only took over for his father as the high priest of the church, but he also leads a group of young, ethnically Lamanite men through a good portion of the war. Because of the apparent lack of records, Mormon draws on a number of letters sent between Nephite leaders to move his narrative along. There's also another major figure introduced during this period, a man named Moroni, who serves as captain of the Nephite armies. Mormon admires Moroni so much that he apparently names his son after him. It makes sense, of course. Mormon himself was made captain over the Nephite armies at a young age, and you can imagine the type of inspiration that he drew from the example of a man like Moroni. Helaman takes us all of the way up until the end of the Book of Alma. He dies just short of the end, and his brother Shiblon takes over the record. Shiblon's role is to get the records to Helaman's son, Helaman, because we get very little from Shiblon before he transfers the book and the book ends. So that's one way to think about the composition of the Book of Alma through its sources. I'm going to offer one more way of thinking about the composition and structure of the Book of Alma. This is taken from an essay called The Structure of the Book of Alma, published in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies by one of my favorite Book of Mormon scholars and the editor of the journal, Joseph Spencer. Very little of what follows is my own thinking or research. In this paper, Spencer first draws our attention to Nehor and Korahor, two figures known as Antichrists in the Book of Mormon. There are other Antichrists, the first being a man named Sherem, and Kylie Nielsen Turley suggests correctly, I think, that Alma himself should be viewed as an Antichrist before his encounter with an angel. But according to Spencer, Nehor and Korahor serve a special function in the Book of Alma to mark parallel stories. Both figures used priestcraft in order to gain power by pretending that they actually believed in what they were preaching, thereby escaping the Nephite law. Nehor and Korahor both serve as more of a catalyst of larger movements than leaders themselves. Neither man lives for very long, but the impact of their respective messages have parallel effects. Nehor's preaching prompts the Amlicite rebellion, and Korahor prompts the Zoramite rebellion. Mormon drops clues in both of these stories to draw our minds to the connection. Both rebellions end with the bodies of the defeated dead being thrown into the river Sidon. The Book of Alma begins with the story of Nehor and the Amlicite Rebellion, which results in Alma giving up his role as chief judge to focus his efforts as high priest of the church. We get reports of his sermons in Zarahemla, Gideon, and Ammonihah. Each city has its own character. Zarahemla is the capital city of the Nephites, but it takes a lot of attention from Alma before the church in Zarahemla gets back on track. Gideon takes less attention. The members there are strong and faithful. Ammonihah is an absolute mess and results in atrocities being committed against those who listen to Alma's message. Spencer argues that Mormon has continued the parallels that he started with the Antichrist into these sermons by comparing the three Nephite cities that we've just mentioned with 
Alma's sons, Helaman, Shiblon, and Corianton. Helaman is the son who is set to take over for his father as the high priest of the church. Similar to Zarahemla, he is in a privileged place, but he requires special attention from Alma. Shiblon, like Gideon, is the obedient son who gets the shortest sermon because there isn't much there to correct. Finally, Corianton, like Ammoniah, is a mess and requires real correction and an extended teaching about the plan of salvation in order to bring him to repentance. What's really cool here, and I'm not really going to go into it that much in this overview, is that the themes of these sermons, those that Alma preaches in the cities and those that he teaches to his sons, also parallel each other. To round off these parallel storylines, each section ends with a story of a battle between the Nephites and the Lamanites. To sum up, Alma 1 through 16 and Alma 30 through 44 tell parallel stories of an antichrist inspiring a rebellion among the Nephites that ends with the defeated rebels being tossed into the river Sidon, followed by three different types of sermons and a final battle between the Nephites and the Lamanites. Still with me? Hopefully, because we aren't finished yet. There are two other sections of the Book of Alma that also tell parallel stories. Alma 17 through 29, and Alma 45 through 63. Both sections begin with Alma on a journey, when he suddenly finds his journey interrupted. In chapter 17, he's interrupted by the return of the sons of Mosiah from their extended mission among the Lamanites. And in chapter 45, Alma disappears, never to be heard from again. Spencer argues, and I'm quoting here, in each case, these interrupted journeys set up the larger narrative's shift from Alma's story to someone else's, in Alma 17 to the story of the sons of Mosiah, and in Alma 45 to the story of Moroni and Amalickiah. End quote. So what does the story of the sons of Mosiah have to do with the story of Moroni and Amalickiah? Well, both concern would-be heirs to the Nephite throne whether in reality in the case of the sons of Mosiah or in their imagination in the case of Amalickiah, leaving the Nephites to go to win over the Lamanites. Now, obviously, the efforts of the sons of Mosiah and those of Amalickiah and his followers are dramatically different. Ammon and Aaron, the two primary brothers in the first story, are focused on bringing people into the covenant. Amalickiah and Amaron, the two brothers in the second story are focused on exploiting the Lamanites for their own political ends. Spencer points to a number of parallels and contrasts between these two stories that we won't get into right now, but they're quite extensive. The important thing to recognize here, and I'll quote again from Spencer, is that where the parallels between Alma 1 through 16 and Alma 30 through 44 suggest a kind of repetition of history, Remember that this parallel is talking about both the Antichrist and Alma's sermons. The parallels between Alma 17 through 29 and Alma 45 through 63 suggest something deeper and more theologically provocative. End quote. Perhaps we prefer when the lessons of a text are put plain and simply like our favorite verse that we can memorize and repeat to bring us comfort. But when the lesson is more ambiguous, it requires work on our part to compare and contrast, to study it out in our minds, compare it to our own experiences, listen to the Spirit, and when necessary, repent. What can the different approaches of Ammon and Aaron and Amalickiah and Amaron teach us about the covenant, power, or our enemies? 
What about the effects of these efforts, like the radical nonviolence of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and the protracted wars with the Amalekites? In some of Moses' final words to the Israelites before they left him for the Promised Land, he said, I call on heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God, and that thou mayest obey his voice, and that thou mayest cleave unto him. For he is thy life, and the length of thy days, that thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them. If Professor Spencer is correct, and you should really go and read his essay to get the full breadth of his argument, then it seems to me that Mormon is using the structure of the Book of Alma to give us the same choice that Moses gave to his people, life and death, and he wants us to choose life. While we may need to do a little work to identify these contrasting stories in the Book of Alma, Mormon makes his plea explicit in some of his final words. In Mormon 7, he says, And now behold, I would speak somewhat unto the remnant of this people who are spared, if it so be that God may give unto them my words, that they may know of the things of their fathers. Yea, I speak unto you, ye remnant of the house of Israel, and these are the words which I speak. Know ye that ye are of the house of Israel. Know ye that ye must come unto repentance, or ye cannot be saved. Know ye that ye must lay down your weapons of war, and delight no more in the shedding of blood, and take them not again. Save it be that God shall command you. Know ye that ye must repent. Know ye that ye must come to the knowledge of your fathers, and repent of all your sins and iniquities, and believe in Jesus Christ that he is the Son of God, and that he was slain by the Jews, and by the power of the Father he hath risen again. Did you catch that reference to the book of Alma? Here Mormon is at the end of his life, at the end of his people, and he sees what has resulted from generations of conflict and warfare and prejudice. And what is his plea to future readers of the Book of Mormon? Know the covenant, repent, and lay down your weapons just like the people of Ammon. Choose life. All right, that wraps up our overview of the Book of Alma. One thing that I want to stress here is that we are still discovering new things about the Book of Mormon. In the last decade or so, People have started to read this book in fresh ways that reveal the hand of the author. Our overview is in no way comprehensive. Mostly, it's a very basic roadmap, but it's also a taste that I hope leaves you wanting more. I hope that at some point in today's episode, you heard something that you had never seen or considered and that you want to explore. I'm excited to study this book with you. Thanks for listening. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at SoundCloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom.